Today's reading is from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Seth, uh, for reading God's word uh, for us today. Uh, uh, right now, um, it is my joy to introduce you to our speaker today, and most of you guys know are familiar with him as he has come uh, to preach a few times already. And today we have um, uh, Pastor Sam uh, here uh, speaking God's word with us today. Uh, just want to give a quick bio to those who are not uh, familiar with him. Uh, Samuel Vu is the father of three fun, crazy kids and the husband of a beautiful, highly accomplished wife who all helped to keep him grounded in life. Sam pastored at New Life Luther, uh, Chinese New Lutheran Church for 14 years before beginning his PhD in the New Testament, which he looks forward to completing next year. Uh, he is a man of many hobbies, uh, the latest of which is straining badminton rackets. <laughs> um, so that's great. Uh, we're excited to have you, uh, Pastor Sam, uh, to speak uh, at God's word. Um, just before I get you to uh, speak, I just want to give everyone a heads up uh, that uh, in the middle of uh, the sermon, um, we will need to be, uh, we will be uh, asked to uh, contribute. And so uh, we're going to be sending out a poll for us to uh, answer some questions uh, together as a community. So just want to let you guys know ahead of time so you are aware of it and be able to participate uh, at the right time. Uh, so without further ado, uh, Pastor Stan, just want to give this time uh, to you. Um, yeah, thanks for that. Welcome, Howard. And it's good to see all of you. Good to be here with all of you. And um, maybe first, just let me say that it is me. It truly is Samuel Vu. I know I don't look the same. Somebody uh, in the prayer meeting said, I don't recognize you. And uh, I know I look different from a year ago. Um, but I, I assure you, even like when I go to the bank, sometimes they ask for my ID. And then they look at me twice or three times. That really, yes, it is, it is me. I just look a little bit different. I look a little bit hairier. But um, it's good to be here with all of you. And I'm uh, really glad that uh, I'm here speaking on this topic. And surprisingly, uh, just a few words of introduction about the topic. Um, I'm glad actually that I'm, I'm very thankful that, that you've invited me to speak on it. Uh, I've, I've learned a lot and prepared in the preparation, uh, in the process of preparing for this message. And uh, I feel that uh, I've uh, gained a lot in this process. I do confess though, that when I first received Pastor Doug's email about the topic of today, I was not super excited. I just, I, as a guest preacher coming into, uh, you know, a, a different space, you're thinking, you know, maybe I can uh, preach on something that's easy and something that maybe I've worked on before or something that's related to something I've done before. So when I first found the topic of hell, I was like, oh, that's not easy. And that's not anything that I've spoken on before, like at length. So actually I, I emailed Pastor Doug and I said, is there any way that I can speak on anything else besides this topic? 
And of course, he he obliged and says, yeah, there's flexibility, and uh, he gave me freedom to do uh, basically choose other things. But as I reflected on it and thought about it, um, I really was convicted that this actually is a good thing to talk about, and this is actually. Uh, I want to be in cooperation to what, what the church is doing. I want to be as closely aligned as possible with the themes that you guys are thinking about. And in process of that, actually, it's been really good for me. And I've learned a lot. And I feel like I've gained a lot from it. So here we are talking about hell. And the question that I was assigned specifically was, how can a loving God send good people to hell? Now, instead of answering that specific question, which uh, Tim Keller addresses in his book, uh, The Reason for God, chapter five. So I think some of you are going through that in the church, uh, at least a study guide. And as you get to chapter five, you'll get his take on it and his perspective on it. And he does a great job, uh, very clearly lays out his perspective of, uh, of God and punishment and hell and, and justice. And so I highly recommend that chapter to you. But I'm going to be taking a slightly different approach, still focusing on this important topic of hell. Now, one of the reasons I think it's important today, important today, uh, this doctrine of teaching of hell, is that it reminds us of a very, very basic Christian belief. And that is very simply that there is an afterlife. That this world, this life, what we see and feel and experience and hear here and now is not all that there is. Our life from birth to death is not everything. Actually, I think this was a, one of the beneficial side effects of COVID, right? At least at the beginning, it reminded us of our mortality and the fragility of life and it forced us to turn to God in ways that sometimes we don't do today. I heard an Anglican bishop speak actually about the impact of COVID on the uh, Inuit communities in the North. And she spoke about how when COVID first arrived in those communities in the North, it was as if God was grabbing people and shaking them, waking them up and as if as an earthquake was going through their communities, shaking the ground, it was so powerful, causing people to rethink their lives and repent. But now, a year and a half later, people have gotten used to it, and they've fallen back into this kind of lukewarmness, and they've forgotten uh, that sense of uh, uh, God's purpose in their lives. Well, taking a serious look at hell, at the teaching of hell, has a potential also to do that. It shakes us up a little. It wakes us up from that kind of spiritual sleepiness or that lethargy, the spiritual lethargy that we may be all prone to here uh, living in Vancouver in the 21st century. The truth is that death is a reality and death is a reality for all of us. And after death, there is judgment, the Bible tells us, and after judgment is hell. So that is a biblical testimony and we're reminded of that today. I'm just going to share my slide, uh, my share my screen here. So I've got some slides to share with you all. Um, let me see if I can find it. There we go. Okay, so you should be able to see uh, my my slides there. Hell, a purpose-filled life. You can maybe catch the pun or the uh, allusion there to a purpose-filled life. Um, my my theme today is a purpose-failed life or a purpose-missed life. Now, a caveat, uh, as we get started on this topic, uh, the Bible does indeed talk about hell, and especially in the New Testament, but there's a pretty big caveat I want to begin with, is that it actually doesn't address the issue of hell directly, like face on directly. So there's no one definitive book 
in the Bible about hell or chapter or passage or even a single verse about the topic of hell per se. Like that's just directed about hell. Like for example, there are passages about marriage or church or ethics or about God and Jesus Christ. There are passages dedicated to those subjects, but not specifically about hell. Now, as I mentioned, the Bible does assume that the afterlife exists and it does mention it in passing numerous times, especially in the New Testament. And it even forms the background for one of Jesus's parables in the, back, in the Gospel of Luke. But it doesn't focus specifically on this topic. So I think the, the best posture to take on the general subject of hell and the afterlife is kind of a, what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12. And he says, uh, now we see through a glass darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known. That's the translation I read as the King James, I think, or, or the uh, ESV. Um, but then we shall see face to face. He's talking about actually not hell, but about actually heaven or after when uh, the resurrected uh, community worships again and gathers again, then we will know face to face. And he's talking about things are going to be different then. And he doesn't know exactly what it's like, but he knows that it will be different. And I think the same thing applies as we think about and talk about hell, is that we don't know exactly what it's like. And unfortunately, the Bible, or maybe fortunately, the Bible has not given us complete details about that. But we do have some kind of guidelines and general principles. I think the best posture then to take is with some modesty and with some humility about this topic which is an important one, but also that we approach it with um, some, some humility. The posture is that we don't quite completely know what the, that picture is going to be like. Now, this is a good place, I think, to mention uh, this book. So I read this book in preparation for uh, this message. It's called Four Views on Hell, uh, published by Zondervan in 1996, so a few years ago. Uh, by a fellow named William V. Crockett. And he's not the only author in the book. There are four actual authors in the book. And it's a part of a series by Zondervan um, called Counterpoints. And what this series does is it discusses a number of Christian topics from different perspectives. So it, for example, talks about miraculous gifts and apologetics and the rapture, creation and evolution. One of them is hell. And it invites different authors and scholars to approach this subject from their perspective within the Christian church. So the assumption is that the Christian church as a whole can hold varying differing viewpoints on these doctrinal subjects and yet still be in fellowship together, yet still be in dialogue and conversation about them. And so uh, this is what happens in this book. There are four different perspectives on hell and I'm gonna, uh, I'm gonna summarize them for you. And, and we're going to talk about them. And that's the, the, the online poll that we're going to take a little bit later on as we're going to talk about these different perspectives and what, um, what might you think is the best one uh, for your understanding of scripture and of life and of God. So the first view is called literalism. And um, the first view is called literalism. And that's a perspective that when, when the Bible talks about hell, it often uses the imagery of fire and of burning and eternal suffering and torment. And we saw some of that today in the Matthew uh, reading from a uh, chapter 25. And when it talks about those, it is meant to be taken literally, completely literally. At face value, the words mean what they are. 
So for example, in Revelation 20, I'll read out to you. After a thousand years, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And the Revelation 21, 14 talks about how death and Hades and anyone whose names are not written in the book of life will also be thrown into the lake of fire. And so there's this sense of eternal suffering. And the line of thought is that if we take the Bible seriously and literally word for word, that's what hell is. It's eternal suffering in the lake of fire of burning physical pain where people are consigned to eternal pain, eternal torment forever for eternity. In fact, um, I was doing a little bit of research online and one fellow on the internet even knows where this place is because it talks about this kind of three-tiered system uh, universe in the Bible, the New Testament, and it talks about the, the, the underworld, and that is where hell is. And of course, we know today that in the middle of the earth is, you know, below the crust, we have magma and the molten core of the earth is this molten rock and lava, and there it's really hot. And so it makes sense to him. He thinks that is physically where hell is, that that's where people are going to be sent once they are judged, and they're going to be suffering in, in torment and pain there forever and ever. That's a literalist view of uh, what hell and the nature of hell is like. The second one um, is a metaphorical one. And here, this, this view is that when the Bible talks about hell, it is not being literal, but the language that is being used is symbolic and it's metaphorical. So therefore, there isn't an, a literal fire. There, wasn't, there isn't a literal burning and a literal physical pain and literal physical suffering. Now, yes, there is an eternal suffering. But exactly what that kind of suffering is and what the nature of that suffering is, we don't quite know on this side of death. It's just beyond our imagination to understand and to fathom. So here people actually, scholars and theologians, they get actually quite creative and in trying to understand what the nature of hell might be like. So C.S. Lewis, for instance, has written an allegory, a book called uh, The Great Divorce, and he's talking about heaven and hell. And he uses this allegory of this image of heaven. Well, everybody gets what they want in heaven and hell. So in heaven, basically, you, those who want to submit to God, those who want to live a life under him, experience his peace and his shalom, his goodness and his love in heaven. But those who refuse to submit to God, well, they also get what they want. They get hell. And hell is a place of this unrestrained selfishness this place where everybody gets just whatever they want. But because of that, instead of uh, human life and civilization flourishing, you have a lot of strife and conflict that eventually what happens is people just distance themselves from each other continually. And so it's this eternity of isolation and complete aloneness in hell. And everyone's just off on their own in their own selfishness. So that's what C.S. Lewis kind of thinks or imagines a hell could be like. Now, this is the metaphorical understanding that there is a kind of eternal suffering, but what that exactly is like, we don't know. There is eternal suffering, metaphorical perspective. The third one that this book talks about, and I'm just going to gloss over this really quickly, is the purgatorial perspective. And that one talks about what the Roman Catholic Church understands as this, this kind of period after death, but uh, before eternity, in which people whose um, hearts and their souls are not yet completely made perfect and that basically means uh, most of us except perhaps the saints um, that that uh, like in the catholic understanding 
need to be perfected. And so there's this period in which our hearts or our souls are continually refined until uh, we are consigned to, to judgment or to heaven. And I, I assume that that's compatible either with a literalist or a metaphorical perspective, but that's a purgatorial uh, perspective. And, and then fourthly is what's called the annihilationist perspective. And this perspective is the understanding that hell is real and judgment is real and it is final. It is final, but it is not eternal in the sense that it goes on continuously forever and ever and ever. So the annihilationist perspective views the eternal continuous suffering of people in hell is that continual punishment in hell as fundamentally incompatible with God's character as revealed in the Bible. How can people be punished eternally forever and ever and ever for, for, for actions or attitudes or beliefs that happened in a finite time over a lifetime? How can that make sense? How can, and secondly, how can God's victory over death and over evil be complete as it seems to be in the New Testament in the eschaton when there's this corner of the universe where people or souls are continuing to be in rebellion against him and, and there continu continues to be suffering and evil and wickedness there. So this perspective takes seriously all the language about the finality, the death of death and the complete victory of God uh, against evil and against sin, against rebellion against him very seriously in the Bible. And therefore, it views that hell is not a place of eternal judgment and suffering and continuous uh, pain, but it's a place of final judgment. And that after, after that judgment, there's complete victory and there's complete shalom in God's cosmos. And that's a, that judgment is a place of great grief and mourning and sadness because those who have been consigned to that will not be part of God's ultimate plan for everybody else, which was to be in shalom and peace with him. But it's not a place of continual suffering. And that's the annihilationist view. So that's four different perspectives uh, that are discussed in this book. And again, I think all three of these, well, four, if you include the Catholic perspective, um, and th again, that's probably compatible with uh, both annihilationist or literal or metaphorical perspectives. All three of these perspectives uh, I think are compatible with a general Christian understanding of what hell and the afterlife uh, can be like. So we can be um, come to different understandings of what that hell, uh, what that afterlife is like, um, and still be in dialogue and still be in, in Christian fellowship and unity together. So here I'm just going to um, give you a chance to maybe just think about where you might come and I think there are people who are in each of these camps in the Christian church and in the evangelical church as well. Um, the literalist understanding, the metaphorical understanding, and then the annihilationist understanding. So what do you think fits um, your understanding of God and the Bible the best? So we're just going to put up an online poll here. I'm going to let the people, the tech people do that. And I'm going to let you, give you a few seconds to just to chime in. What do you think is makes most sense for you. It'll be interesting to see the results of this.
Okay, polling is closed. And so we've got 14 votes. Um, two of them, literalistic, 10 metaphorical, and two annihilationist. That's uh, quite interesting. That probably, I think, uh, aligns best with, or most pretty closely with evangelical understanding of hell as a whole, um, as, I, as I kind of uh, have experienced the church uh, myself. And uh, most evangelicals will probably fall into this metaphorical camp that there is some kind of eternal suffering uh, forever and ever, but we don't quite understand what it's like. Now, personally, I've moved from a literalistic to a metaphorical, and today I find myself in, I, in the annihilationist camp. And just as I was thinking about and preparing for this message, actually, that to me, that seems to make a lot of sense of certain biblical data uh, in terms of God's completeness uh, of victory uh, in this cosmos and the desire that he has for all people uh, to be uh, to find that purpose which, for which he has consigned or he is assigned or intended for us. So I sort of have found myself in an annihilationist camp, and I don't want to talk about uh, all my own journey, um, but within the Christian world view, I think there is room for understanding all three of these. Now, Tim Keller, in his chapter, he will fall uh, squarely in the metaphorical understanding, in the C.S. Lewis understanding, uh, in which he believes that there is this eternal suffering and pain, but exactly what that is, we, we don't know. So um, I want to change gears a little bit now and talk about, come back to the Bible. So the text that we had read out this morning from the Gospel of Matthew is found in the eschatological portion of Matthew. And that is these chapters that talk about the end times. That's what eschatology just refers to as the end times. And in this section of the Gospel of Matthew, he, is Jesus' teachings about the end times. Now, this passage is about Judgment Day and the separation of the sheep and the goats on to the right and to the left of Jesus. Uh, usually when this passage, passage is read, it's read in its full context. And so it's talking about not just the judgment, but also about mercy and social justice and love. And those are actually the main points of this passage about those who have fed and clothed and were kind and compassionate to people who are brothers and sisters. And Jesus says, well, you've done just as you've done so to these, you've done so to me. And, and so the passage actually is about mercy and justice. But I don't want to focus on that today. I just want to focus on the judgment aspect, because that's what we're talking about. And this, I chose this passage because it's very, very clear that in this passage, Jesus just assumes that heaven and hell are real. Judgment is real. And that's part of Jesus' worldview and part of the Bible's worldview. And so we cannot escape it. Now, what I want to do actually is take uh, a few minutes to kind of look at a couple of key moments in the biblical narrative and ask the question of what can we learn about hell and about final judgment from these passages, these key moments in the Bible. So the first one I want to take a look at is the moment of creation. The first moment is creation, when God creates Adam and Eve. 
So God creates Adam and Eve and he places them in the garden and he has this very, very good purpose for them to be partners together in life and to cultivate life and to work together to bring about life in this garden. But he has certain boundaries for them. Now they are creatures. They're created as a pinnacle of God's creation on the sixth day, but they still are God's creatures. That is, he is a creator and they are simply creatures. And so there are these rules, these boundaries that he set for them. And the tragedy, of course, of the creation story is that they, they, they choose to rebel against that. They don't choose to follow that, uh, to, to live life within those constraints and those boundaries that God has set. And there are severe consequences for them and for all the creation. So where is hell in this picture? Well, interestingly, Death was supposed to come if they disobeyed. But it seems that God postpones death for them, which eventually does come. And instead of immediate punishment, what they receive is a measure of mercy. And in fact, what God does is he even makes garments of protection for them and he sends them out. Now there is judgment, but not in the sense of final judgment that we might have expected. So what can we learn about judgment and hell in this? I think it is that God is more interested in redemption than he is in judgment. What happens, in fact, in this creation story is that this judgment becomes the initial impetus for the beginning of the entire story of the people of Israel. So God's relationship with his people, Israel. There is judgment, which is there, but the final judgment is postponed. And what happens is this, this becomes a beginning point of the whole story of God's purpose and redemption of Israel. So I think God is more interested in redemption than he's in judgment. That's what we learned from the creation story. Now, the second point I want to consider in the Bible is the story of covenant. So as God's people grow in number and organization and understanding of who God is, he begins to reveal to them how to live life. And he asks them to live in a certain way. That, that's what we call covenant or the law. And he gives them guidelines, rules of how he wants them first to live in relationship with him. And secondly, in relationship with one another. He says that you are my people. I am your God. I want you to look like me in your conduct and in your character and in how you behave both towards me and towards one another. And if you do so, you will flourish. That's my intention for you to flourish in this land in which I am bringing you into. But if you don't, then judgment will come. Again, there's this conditionality. And again, the tragedy of the, the covenant story is that Israel decides not to obey. And of course, it's a long and complex history. But almost immediately, they start to breach this covenant that God has made for them and with them. And then it keeps on happening from Exodus all the way on into the prophets. The story unfolds. There's this lack of obedience between uh, or of Israel to God. And then there's this back and forth that God has with Israel as he calls them to repentance and he tries to lead them back towards him. But as time goes on, what we see is that the situation doesn't get any better. There are sometimes these moments in the history of the kings where we see that there is greater obedience, but generally as a whole, things are sliding worse and worse. And in the end, in the end by the, uh, the time of the prophets, the, the great prophets like Israel, uh, Isaiah, 
basically it says that Israel looks just like the nations around them from, from whom they were supposed to be separate and special and different and look like God. They look in fact, just like the nations around them. And so what happens at that point is that judgment comes. Judgment comes first through Assyria and then Babylon. These foreign nations, these armies come and invade and destroy uh, Israel. These nations whom God had actually pushed out of the land to make room for his people. In fact, they come back and they're actually God's agents now and come and destroy uh, Israel. And in, in fact, they destroy Jerusalem. And in fact, the very place where God has chosen to dwell, the holiest place, the temple, they come and destroy that and they take the people captive. So there is a sense of finality and a sense of judgment here. And that probably, I think, is the closest that we get to hell, per se, in the Old Testament. There's also a sense of uh, this shadowy existence uh, afterlife, but it doesn't talk really too much about that. But in terms of final judgment, what we have is this exile, complete destruction of Israel. So I think what can we learn from hell and final judgment in this picture is that final judgment is real and will eventually come. He wanted, God wanted his people to flourish in the land and experience peace and shalom and goodness, and justice. Instead, they were defeated they were destroyed, and they were exiled. Now, even in the midst of that destruction, God still wants to do something new, and there are promises of uh, renewal. And here I want to mention that the biblical idea of punishment is, is different than the cultural notion of punishment. God's punishment in the Bible really is more disciplinary. Today we hear the word punishment, and sometimes we think uh, that it's the opposite, the complete opposite of love and of mercy. But biblically, punishment and discipline is actually very much related to love in the Bible. It's through discipline that God teaches his people to turn back to him. And I think as parents, we all discover this too, is that sometimes the only way to teach our children uh, things that are really important in life is actually to have them suffer and to have them experience pain and the hardful and sometimes painful consequences of the actions, the choices of their actions. So even in the midst of the most severest punishments in the Old Testament, there's this hope for renewal and that something truly good can come out of it. And that is essentially where the Old Testament ends and the New Testament picks up. And there's this twist, though, in the New Testament that the fulfillment of all the promises in the Old Testament is that they don't look exactly like how the Jewish people thought they were going to look like. So instead of a worldly kingdom and an earthly kingdom and a worldly king and an earthly king, they receive Jesus, who is born of, of David, who is born of Mary and Joseph, and is born in Bethlehem. Jesus now becomes a focal point of the whole story, the creation and covenant. It's this one person, Jesus, who gets the entire focus of uh, the New Testament. And it's Jesus, whom the disciples now call their king, their Messiah. And through him, they now receive all the promises that were in the Old Testament, of joy, of shalom, of peace, of justice, of fulfillment, even of eternal life. All of their hopes are now bound in this one person, Jesus. That's what the New Testament teaches us. And that's what the early church experienced in him, this new lease on life who undid the effects of sin of Adam and Eve, the rebellion of Adam and Eve, who undid the effects of the rebellion of Israel over their history. Now Jesus fulfills what God had come to do and the purpose for which he had come, he had created the world and entered into covenant with Israel.
So one way to think about hell from a biblical perspective, much more than punishment and suffering, hell is to utterly miss the purpose for which we were created. Much more than punishment and suffering, hell is to utterly miss the purpose for which we were created. And that sounds simple, but sometimes I think we miss it because it's so simple. That God didn't create us to punish us. God didn't create us to judge us. That God didn't create us to have us suffer in hell. He created us so that he could love us and so that we could love him back or ask us to love him back and to love each other. So from the perspective of creation and covenant, hell really is to miss the whole point of why God had created us in the first place. It's really a purpose-failed life that God had intended this for us, but hell becomes that we actually miss the whole point of why we are existing in the first place. So there's this biblical image of uh, jars of clay, empty vessels in the Bible. The Bible, Bible talks about jars of clay. And of course, God is the potter and we are the clay. And he's the one who molds us and shapes us. He's the potter. We are the clay. We are in his hands. But we have a purpose as vessels. If a clay jar is never filled up, is never used, it just never accomplishes the purpose for which it was created, which was to, to fill, to be filled as a vessel. So we are like that too. We have a purpose in life. Hell, much more than just punishment and suffering, which it is, and which the Bible does talk about God's justice and his holiness and rebellion of people and a sense of uh, the reward for the righteousness and, and uh, punishment for the wicked. Going to hell really is to miss the very purpose for which we were created. So even in this life, I think we can live out a hellish kind of an existence when we live empty lives, lives that are purposeless, lives that, that miss the purpose for which we were created. How many people in this life will begin a life that a trajectory in this life that's leading them away from God's purpose in life rather than leading them towards him? I think that's a good way of understanding hell and the afterlife, that we're leading away from God's purpose for us rather than towards it and towards him. Now, the good news for us as believers is that we have a purpose in life. We found that in Jesus. We have this sense of calling and the sense of mission. There is a reason that God created me and the reason that God created you. That he's going to use me in my gifts. He's going to use me in my personality, in my context, in my setting, in my relationships. And wherever he's put me, he's, going, he's got a purpose for me. Just like he's got a purpose for you that's set out for you. But sometimes we miss that. And it seems like in hell, we miss that ultimately. To me, that's an extremely sad, sad prospect that we would miss the entire purpose for which we were created. Now, I want to end it with a story, uh, probably uh, perhaps to help encourage us. Now, I'm a volunteer in a ministry of healing and discipleship for people who experience uh, sexual and emotional brokenness. And in this ministry, we sometimes receive people who have experienced great uh, trauma and abuse. Uh, either emotionally or sexually or uh, physically. And in this ministry, people will come and bring their burdens to Jesus, bring their burdens to the cross, bring their past, their pain 
their memories, their, their trauma, uh, and bring their sins to the cross. And at the cross, they will, they will receive uh, forgiveness and healing and wholeness. I remember I met this fellow uh, a few years ago who struggled with attraction to other men, same-sex attraction. And, uh, but more than same-sex attraction, he experiences deep sense of self-hatred. And he just loathed himself. He hated himself and how God had created him. But through this ministry, he began to encounter Jesus and he, as he brought his, the brokenness of his past to the cross. Uh, his abuse and the things that he had experienced, as well as the things that he'd done, he brought all these to the cross and he began to experience freedom and freedom from the shame and the self-hatred that he was uh, uh, feeling. But instead of Jesus instantly making him whole and overnight him becoming a different person, Jesus helped him to process that past over a period of time. And there's a period of self-discovery, a period of prayer in which he began more and more to accept himself and to see himself more and more how Jesus accepted him. So he began to see himself with the compassion that Jesus had. And that was a process that worked over several years. I remember walking, walking with him for a season of, of that life. And whenever he felt down or depressed or really sad or had acted out in some way or was tempted to act out in some way that was against his own conscience, he, he would text me. And I would text him back in a word of encouragement or sometimes we would call and we would share. I would pray for him. That season lasted probably about a year or so. But gradually I saw him change before my, very, before my own eyes, he got stronger and stronger and more healed and more and more whole. And over the years, he shared with me, he still feels pangs of self-hatred and temptation. And he's not perfect and he's not completely whole. And he knows that in this lifetime, he probably won't be. But what a difference his life is now compared to what it was when I first met him. Now he's part of this ministry that works with others in their struggles, the same ministry which had met him. He's walking with them and praying with them and meeting with them. What a sense of purpose he had. And I think that's partly what purpose does for us. And that's what God has intended for us, is to live this purpose-filled life. That we are meant to walk in the meaning and the purpose that he has set out for us. I just think, what would, have, what would he have been like if Jesus had not met him in that hour of his need? How would he have been a different person today? But thank God that Jesus did meet him in that place and in that time. And Jesus has a purpose for each of us in our lives. That's why he created us, to find that purpose, to live in that purpose. He did not create us to judge us uh, or to, to have us suffer or to punish us. So let us together find our purpose in him, our meaning in him. Now, whether that be, um, I know there are a lot of young families in, in, in your congregation too. Maybe it's just right in your own home with your spouse or with your children, with your uh, little kids who need you. What is your purpose in that context, your greatest purpose? Or maybe it's in your workplace with that really difficult colleague or at school with your secular friends. Whatever it is, wherever, what is God's purpose for you? Hell, more than just suffering and punishment, is actually to miss God's greatest purpose for us, to live in communion with him, 
and in fellowship with others. And maybe as we find our purpose in life, we can help others find theirs, that maybe they can look to our lives as we challenge the culture around us. And we don't have to live as everybody else does in this culture, in this city, in the secular city that we live in. We don't have to chase the things that everybody else is chasing. We don't have to have the same priorities that everyone else has. We can be committed followers of Jesus in this city. We can because we have greater purpose in this life. We can live differently and maybe people can see us and they too can begin to find their purpose in life that God has intended for them as they come to know God and more and more in Jesus Christ. Uh, let me just pray for us. Father, I, I thank you that there is this, this, this um, stream, uh, this line of uh, teaching in the Bible um, that helps us to think about life beyond just this life. And we really do need that in this context where we have life so good in Vancouver, we sometimes forget. Even in the midst of a pandemic, we, we have life really good here. Sometimes we forget that there is this reality beyond the 80 to 100 years here that we live. And so we thank you that you remind us that life is much more than just what we see and experience here. But there is a good intention that you have for us both in this life as well as after. So help us to keep these things in mind. Thank you, Lord, that you have a great purpose for us. And there's a temptation for us continually, I think, to, to miss that purpose, to miss that mark of what you actually intend for us in our lives. So help us to align ourselves with your purpose, to not be afraid and not fear you in the sense that we think that you are simply going to punish us, but to fear you in the sense that we want to respect you, we want to obey you, we want to follow you because of who you are, your righteousness and your justice and your goodness in this world. And we've experienced that. So help us, Lord, to continue to follow you, to find that purpose for which you've created us. And also, as we live in the difficult uh, environment in which we live in, in Vancouver, the secular one, this secular city, that as we challenge the, the assumptions about this of this city and how to live and the priorities, that we, we pray too that people might look at us and see something different and that they might be able to be inspired by the sense of purpose with which we live, uh, the sense of commitment with which you live and perhaps even sacrifice and that we uh, can inspire others to also look for that sense of greater purpose in life. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.